We're in Revelation chapter 3. Father, as we come to the Scripture, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears. There's a commendation at the close of each one of these seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We can't give ourselves that ear. We depend on you to do it for us. <coughs> we can come to you in humility and in faith, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging that there are times when your word is confusing to us or it's hard for us to obey. The Lord, even where our hearts are not willing, let us be willing to be made willing and grant us ears to hear your word. We thank you in your holy name. Amen. We are, uh, we're almost done with this study through these seven churches in Revelation. We had a couple of messages in, John, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, and we've taken a, a church each Sunday since then. It, it's certainly possible that next week we'll launch into Laodicea. Um, but I'm kind of thinking about something else, too. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. Uh, it's, it's Halloween. It's not Halloween. It's Reformation Day. 499 years ago tomorrow, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic priest in Wittenberg, Germany, nailed a, a list of 95 statements uh, to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, which was their university bulletin board. It, it was kind of their, their Facebook at the time. And he nailed those things up there in order to prompt a, a discussion amongst himself and other professors. He was there teaching at the university. Some other uh, young people saw it, and they, they took that list of things down, and they went to a, a printer, and they had them printed, and they started distributing those things. Uh, those 95 theses, Luther's original intent was kind of like they would be emails. They'd be private and then thrown away. And uh, lo and behold, the Lord had other purposes, and they went public. And with them going public, he was called upon by, the, by Rome to answer for, uh, for questioning and challenging the teachings of the church. And the Reformation began. Next year is the 500th anniversary. So the next year is really uh, kind of a key time. So what I'm contemplating doing is, is taking the first Sunday of the month and, and dealing with issues related to the Reformation, not in terms of, an, of a, a Roman Catholic apology, but rather, that, rather looking at issues like the, the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of the believer, uh, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone, and that sort of thing. Um, some have a, a Roman Catholic background. Others probably have Roman Catholic friends. Not every Catholic believes everything that, that uh, Rome teaches, but those essential elements of, of the faith uh, are usually held. And so how do you have conversations with them over the next year? That's kind of what I'm thinking about doing. There's going to be a prayer, prayer about that with me. With the, the letter to the church in Philadelphia that Jesus gives, I made the, the comment earlier during our prayer time that this letter speaks to some things that we're dealing with as a, uh, as a church in the United States today. Um, the church in Philadelphia, I, I need to give you a little bit of 
introduction to it because it's a longish letter and because there's some things that I want you to be looking for. Um, It's a church that's facing discouragement. It's a church that is greatly outnumbered by the Gentiles within the city of Philadelphia. This is obviously not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You couldn't get a good cheesesteak sandwich there if there's such a thing as a good cheesesteak sandwich. I think there is, but... Um, this is uh, one of the cities in western Turkey, what in the biblical time was known as Asia Minor. The city was a, a moderately large city. There were a large number of Gentiles there. It was an agricultural center. It sat on, a, on a, two different large highways, one of which was the official Roman postal road. If you're going to send a letter through the empire and it was traveling through the region, it would travel through the city of Philadelphia. There was also a sizable Jewish population there. Uh, there's some understanding that <coughs> that in the, the middle of the first century, at least, there may have been as many as 4,000 Jewish men there. And when you add in families and children, you, you come to a fairly large population. There isn't a single synagogue there. There are probably multiple synagogues there. Because of a statement that Jesus makes about the church in, uh, in verse 9, or verse 8 rather, it's thought that, that they were not a big church. He says you have a little power. He doesn't say it with any rebuke. He doesn't say it with any disapproval at all. And the, the, the two possibilities there are that because there were few of them, there's, I'm gonna, let me just give you a grammar warning ahead of time. Few Christians, few power. There's only so many people to pray. There's only so many people to proclaim the gospel and live for Christ. The greater the size of the church, if the church is faithful, the greater the potential impact I think it even goes beyond that. I think it speaks not only to the fact that this is a, a church that's small in number, but this is a church that recognizes where it lives. And it recognizes that it is simply grossly outnumbered by both pagans and religious Jews. This is a church that is small in number in a culture where numbers are really the only thing that matter. How big are you? How much influence do you have? Power is measured by size. And so the church doesn't have numbers or worldly power or influence. But as we'll see, the church has the word. And the church has the gospel. And the church has the spirit of God. And the church has the approval of the Lord Jesus, his love and his affection and his protection. And he encourages them on that basis. His description of himself is is part of that. As we consider the description... It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus is the Holy One. Holy One is a, a title that is applied to God throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. It's used more than 30 times in the book of Isaiah alone. So Isaiah 1.4 uh, says uh, about Israel in their sin, by the way, that Israel is a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah 12.6 says, Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 41.16 says, You shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Isaiah 43.15 sums it all up in, in an absolute unmistakable way. I am the Lord. 
your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He calls for absolute faith and absolute allegiance. Now, this is applied to the Lord Jesus as well. Prophetically, Psalm 16.10, dealing with the crucifixion, Jesus says, "There, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. And it's fulfilled in the New Testament with the the, uh, resurrection of Christ. During Jesus' ministry on earth, demons recognized him. You know, sometimes somebody's enemies can, can be more trustworthy than their friends. Their friends might be tempted to exaggerate. Enemies never exaggerate. Good stuff. Well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus goes into a synagogue. There's a man who's demon-possessed there. This demon cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. By the grace of God, the disciples recognized him as well. Peter, speaking for the others, says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus' description begins with a statement of his deity. It's it's certainly popular in in, uh, non-Christian circles, especially Muslim circles, to say, Jesus never made any claim to be God. It's a lie. He does right here. He makes it. Very, very clear. He's the Holy One. It's a description that's only applied to God. And when, yeah, and then there's, there's certainly other things as well. Jesus is also the true one. Now, he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a different word. He is the truth. No question about it. But here is the true one. The, the sense is he is the real one. He is the actual one. He is the real one promised. He is the actual one promised. We don't get to substitute some other for him. So First John 5.20, John writes, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal God. There's only one God. That one true God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three divine persons. So John 3.16 says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. He's unique. Colossians 1.15-20 describes Jesus as both God and man, and he's the only one like that. This isn't just theology. This isn't just about making fine distinctions within theology. This is extraordinary practical. Extraordinarily practical. Now I can prove it to you. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no other name, because no other name has been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.9-11 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, the Holy One, and he is the one sent by God, the one that we we must deal with and face. Acts 14 says God has appointed him to be the judge of the living and the dead. So he's the real one. He's the true one. All of the false gods, frankly, all the false Christs. Jesus said, many are going to rise claiming to be me. They can do whatever they want. They can use their, use 
his name if they want to. It doesn't change the fact that there is only one, and he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Beyond that, it says, he has the key of David. He's the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David. And with that key, opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. Um, The key of David is a messianic title. It's a messianic phrase. It refers to the kingdom of David, the throne of David. The Messiah would be the son of David. He would sit on David's throne, and he would rule David's kingdom, which is the, the rightful kingdom on earth. He's writing to a church that's primarily Gentile. By the end of the first century, churches were primarily Gentile. I think that there was probably almost always some, some Jewish uh, participation in the church. But by this point, this is three or four generations, maybe after the birth of the church. Jewish interest has gone away. It's primarily hostility. The church is primarily Gentile. Why talk to a bunch of Gentiles about the Messiah? The reason he does that is because of the status of the Jews in, in uh, the city of Philadelphia. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. He says, I am going to make them come and bow before you. We'll see that in a minute. And I will make them know that I have loved you. So he begins by saying, Jesus is God himself. He is the only begotten of God, the only one sent of God. And he is the Messiah. Those who reject him then are false. Those who receive him are true. He gives them a commendation in verse 8. We often see commendations in, in these uh, passages, in these letters. The commendation is simply, I know your works. I know your works. He doesn't describe what the works are. He simply says, I, I know your works. But we can think about what the other letters say and get an idea of what those works might have been. So they're faithful. They're faithful workers. They labor long and hard for the glory of the Lord. They endured long-suffering. They held tightly to Jesus' name in spite of opposition and persecution. They refused to deny his name. They refused to deny the gospel. They had no tolerance for evil, whether it was the moral evil of idolaters and adulterers on the Gentile side or the spiritual evil of those who falsely claimed spiritual authority. They refused to participate in the wickedness of those around him. At the very least, they're doing those things. They have to be because Jesus gives them no rebuke. There's no correction in this letter. There's no prescription for change in this letter. There's no warning for what will happen if they don't repent. He never commands them to repent. They're not perfect. They're not flawless. Nothing in the scripture says that. There's no such thing as a perfect church. It's, you know, it's been said a long time, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> but they're a humble church. And they're a faithful church. Jesus is not looking for us in this life, in this flesh we have to deal with, to be sinlessly flawless. He's looking for us to be humble and faithful. That's the call of God upon our lives. And he says to them after that commendation, uh, he describes their circumstance. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. That goes right back to the introduction of himself. He has the key of David, and whatever he opens, no one can shut. And whatever he shuts, no one can open. I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. What's the open door? I I think it's a broad reference. 
In John 10, in a couple of places, Jesus says that he is the door of the sheep, that those who are his sheep come come in through him into the flock of God. And so Jesus says there, the open door is eternal life. And once eternal life has been opened to you, it will not shut. He won't shut it because he's promised not to, and nobody else has got the power to shut it. Nobody can slam that door on us. In Hebrews 4, he talks about uh, Jesus making a way so that we can come before the throne of God and receive grace to help in time of need. The open door is this, this free, immediate access to our Father in heaven. We take that for granted. We just, we just don't even think about it. We, we raise our children from the earliest age to simply close their eyes and pray. That, that just would not have happened. Any meaningful worship that took place in the Old Testament times took place through the priesthood and the temple and the, the sacrificial system. We've got a, an, an archway at what's called the Court of Israel. And, and a, a Jewish man can come as far as that archway. Unfortunately, ladies, you've got to stay back in the, in the women's court. The man can come here, he can bring his offering, and he watches a priest take the offering and kill it and, and uh, butcher it if need be and lay part of it on the altar and cook part of it and bring it back, but the man isn't allowed past that point. On the other side of the altar, he can see some distance away, he can see the, the building of the, the sanctuary itself. In the Old Testament, during the wanderings in the wilderness, it was a tent, it was a tabernacle. Once they built the temple proper, it became the sanctuary, a physical, uh, permanent building. And he sees these two massive doors there that lead into the, the holy place. And in the holy place is the, the uh, lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And he may be there at a time when he sees a, a priest go in to tend to the lamps or to change out the showbread or to offer incense on that altar. And he knows that not only can he not go in, the vast majority of the priests that day can't go in. Every day they would, they would count out the number of priests who were there to serve. They only needed one to take care of the altar of incense. And so one was chosen by casting lots for that purpose. The rest couldn't go in. If he was standing there and, and happened to see the doors open, he might be able to even see through to the veil, to the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can go, only once a year, only, aftering, only after offering sacrifices for his own sins so that he can bring a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. When Jesus says that a way has been made, free and immediate access to the Father, it's as though this man standing there pushes past the priest, past the altar, up the steps, opens the door into the sanctuary, takes a bite out of the showbread, swings open the the curtain, and walks into the Holy of Holies before the, the Ark of the Covenant, and isn't struck dead, and is welcomed. So when Jesus says in in Hebrews, as the word of God, everything has come from him, that he has given us this access so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy in time of need. Jews were horrifically offended by that. Or their hearts were broken with relief and they believed because suddenly they were not held out and held off. There's an open door 
of salvation. There's an open door of access to God the Father. In Revelation 4.1, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and a voice called out. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after this. There's an open door to heaven for us. There's an open door to heaven for us. That's the only door. If you're in Jesus Christ and you die, there is only one doorway. There's no hall. There's a door. There's no tunnel. There's a door. And that door is into the heaven of God, a place that is filled with worship constantly. It never stops. A place which is mind-bogglingly awe-inspiring. This week I had a man tell me that he died and went to heaven and talked to Jesus. And, and, and I know that I had an expression on my face that he, he felt needed to be, no, that he felt needed to, to be kind of, he said, no, it, it, it happened. And he said, I tell you what, I was kind of angry because I wasn't done living. And I'm thinking, hmm. And then he says, and it really wasn't very impressive. And I said, you weren't in heaven. Yes, I was. No, you weren't. You weren't there. You're right. I wasn't there. Neither were you. Because the Bible tells us, and before I could tell him what the Bible tells us, he said, that's just written by men to control people. They said, well, you need to repent. See, there's a door open to us, and when we die, when we leave this life, the next thing that happens to us is we pass through that door, and we see not something that's not impressive, but the, the glory of God depicted. Finally, there's an open door in, in Scripture that refers to opportunities for evangelism. We see that frequently used by the Apostle Paul. Pray for me that a door would be opened for the gospel. Or I'm staying here because there is an open door of opportunity. Now, which one of these is Jesus talking about when he talks about the open door? Frankly, I think he's talking about all of them. I think he's talking about the eternal life that we have received. He's talking about our, our free and immediate access to the very throne of God. He's talking about a door into heaven. No hallway, so there's no, there's no side exit into purgatory. It's just a doorway straight into heaven. And he's talking about opportunities to present the gospel, opportunities to share Christ with the lost. Maybe we could just boil it down even more and say that the open door means the freedom and ability to enjoy all that the Lord promises and to do all that the Lord commands. We have the freedom and the ability to enjoy all that the Lord promises. Not that he fulfills every promise today, but his promises are yes and amen. And we have the ability and the freedom to do all that the Lord commands. There's nothing holding us back except us. And he says that his zeal will accomplish this. He says that so clearly in the scripture. He set before them an open door, and nobody is able to shut that door. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now back to that little power. There's a lot of thought that the reference there is the fact that there's a small number of them who are faithful. And so there's a small amount of power that's there. But how much power does it actually take when God is on the, the acting end? When it's the zeal of God who accomplishes it, we don't need a huge amount of power. And in spite of that, he says, you have kept my, my word. 
You've lived in obedience to me. You've lived in faithfulness to me. And you have not denied my faith. You have not denied the gospel. You have not denied my name. I've already talked about the size of Philadelphia and the the Jewish population that's there. But I really want you to get a sense of, of what it's like. And all you have to do is just think about our current election situation. Think about uh, uh, abortion in the land. Think about homosexuality in the land. And we look at a, a small church. Maybe the church in Philadelphia was this size. And we look at a city the size of Norfolk that is running headlong, headlong into destruction. The, the Gentiles absolutely blind to it. The Jews who have come so close and yet have denied their Messiah. And so he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They're not Jews at all, he says. They're liars when they say that they're Jews. And this church is sitting there saying, yeah, we know that. But look at how many of us there are. What do you expect us to do? And Jesus says, I know your works. I know you've kept my word. I know that you've never denied my name. I have set before you an open door. You have eternal life. They can't take that from you. I have set before you an open door. You can come before God the Father at any time. They can't. He doesn't hear them. I have set before you an open door. Heaven is waiting. It doesn't matter what the Gentiles say. It doesn't matter what the Jews say. I have set before you an open door for the gospel. You go stand at the doorway and look at that broad road that leads to destruction and you just proclaim Christ. And every once in a while, you'll see someone who hears and who responds and you can lead them toward that open door. So he promises vindication. In verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They're not going to come down and bow down and worship. It's not about worship. It's about recognition. It's about recognition. And it's connected to that statement, they will learn that I have loved you. The history of Israel is absolutely filled with Promises of God and unbelief and unfaithfulness on the part of the Jews. God brings in, read the book of Judges, it's like a broken record. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord brought in fill in the blank to punish them. And they suffered for fill in the blank years. And then they cried out to the Lord. And then the Lord raised up fill in the blank and he delivered them. And they had peace for fill in the blank years. And the Lord and, the, and, the, and Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord raised up this people, punished them. They cried out. He delivered them. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's like the song that never ends. It didn't stop with the end of the prophetic age. It continues on in the Gospels. We almost see that very pattern continue on in the Gospels, where Jesus goes to Cana and he does the, and he does the miracles, and people are screaming and just enraptured by him, and he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And then Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus says, let's cut to the chase. You don't believe me at all. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the ones who have the son have life. The ones who have not believed in the son are already condemned. Jesus does more miracles. He feeds thousands 
They begin to follow him in droves. He, he comes and he proclaims a very difficult message to hear. You have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want to have any part of me. And, and so many leave that he turns to his own disciples. We have three, six, we've got 12 in here. He turns to the 12 and says, are you going too? That's how many left him. And Peter says, John six sixty nine. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Those numbers build up again, and they cast down again, and they build up again, and they cast down again. The gospel is preached in Jerusalem. 3,000 get saved the first day. There's another point where 5,000 believe. And it says in Acts 2 that the Lord was adding daily to their number those who were being saved. I mean, explosive growth. Explosive growth. And, and, and you know, by the way, they didn't have the luxurious meeting space we have to try and pack 3,000 people in. But the Jewish leaders get jealous and they reject. And all of a sudden there's persecution up and down, up and down. Up and down. God's purpose for Israel is perfect. He has cut them off. He has set them aside for a season of time. In order that he may graft in the Gentiles, the book of Romans says. And when that time is accomplished, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he is going to save the nation. He is going to restore the nation to faith. We're going to see that in Revelation as we, as we move on. And I, I, I believe that... When it says he restores the nation, he will come to a point of generation for the nation when every single Jew living on earth believes in the Lord Jesus. And he is vindicated by Israel. The same Israel that rejected him will receive him. Now, I know what you're thinking, but that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations after the fact. You look at how he treats, speaks to Israel. He speaks to Israel as though there's no such thing as a generation. In Deuteronomy, when he's speaking to those who were born in the wilderness, not those who were delivered from Egypt and died because of their sin, when he speaks to those who were born in the wilderness, he, he puts the sin of their fathers on them. You were delivered from Egypt. They weren't even born yet. You rejected. They hadn't had the opportunity yet. He treats Israel as a nation so that his promises may be fulfilled. The scripture says, to boil it all down, if it's possible to do that at this point, Galatians 3.7 says, Know then it is those of faith who are of the sons of Abraham, not those who are of the flesh. So the, the, the church in Philadelphia has put their faith in the Messiah. Remember? Holy one, true one, who has the keys of David. They have become spiritual Israel, while physical Israel has denied the Lord and has been cut off. Yes, they're physically descended, but they've been cut off. And Jesus says, I am going to make them bow down before you and recognize that I have loved you. He's going to vindicate the small faith that we have. And at the same time, he's going to eventually bring them to salvation. He gives them a, a statement of protection in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We've already talked about their faithfulness. Because they have kept his name, 
They have faithfully obeyed him. They have not denied him. He is going to keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. The hour of trial is the the seven-year tribulation that's described in this book. Now, seven years is not a long time. I mean, when I was born, it took seven years to get to the second grade, which is not a lot of progress in seven years. The American Revolution lasted from 1775 to 1783, eight years. The Second World War lasted six years from September 39 to September 45, but less than four of that was, uh, in, involved the United States. American involvement in Vietnam began in November of 1955 and ended in January of 1973, right around 18 years. The Second Gulf War began in 2003, and semantics aside and political maneuvering aside, I think we're still fighting it. I don't think that one's over. So seven years is, is not a long time. It's not a long time at all. But it's a terribly long time when it involves the degree of suffering that's to come upon the whole earth. Jesus says the point of this tribulation is to test those, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'll give, I'll give you a, a, a homework assignment. Read through the book of, of Revelation. You can start in chapter 4 if you like. Read through the book of Revelation and pay attention to every time you see the phrase, those who dwell on the earth. And you'll see that it it only applies to unbelievers. It applies to the judgment that they receive and it applies to their false worship of Antichrist. It never applies to Christians. Jesus is bringing an hour of trial to try those, to test those who dwell on the earth. Why? Well, it's it's related to the testing of the Old Testament. It's related to the idea of God saying to his people Israel, I'm going to test you to see if you love me with all of your heart. And think about this. He could remove the church in the rapture, take a deep breath, snap his fingers, and completely sweep the face of the earth clean. If all he was interested in was punishing the wicked, why not do that? Be done. Why go through seven years? Why go through bowls and trumpets and seals? Because every time one of those things hit, there's, there's an explicit or an implicit opportunity to repent. There's even a point where, because there are virtually no believers left on the face of the earth, he sends an angel through heaven preaching the gospel. The point of this testing is, is not the destruction of every last living human being. The point of this testing is to separate those who are alive into those who will believe and those who will not. Those who will believe receive what we believe, or receive what we receive. They receive an open door of salvation. They receive free and immediate access to God the Father. They, they receive the full day's wage. You know, the parable of the denarius. They receive the full day's wage, even though they come at the very end of the day, the last possible minute, when everybody's kind of starting to quit anyway. Yeah. Right? It's okay. Your boss isn't here. We won't tell him. <laughs> they receive the full day's wage. The rest are condemned. The rest are judged. But not until there has been a final lengthy season of outreach by the Lord. Can, can we acknowledge that it's through the preaching of the gospel that sinners come to salvation? Can we acknowledge that the preaching of the gospel has not saved the world? That many or most are still destined? And so in that final push, 
The Lord ramps it up, and it's not just words coming. Now it's pain and suffering. It's the kind of thing that's designed to break your pride, break your self-reliance, destroy your confidence in your gods or your lack of gods, destroy your confidence in the scientific method, and make you understand that there is a God who proclaims a gospel and that there's an opportunity to believe. The church is going to be protected from that. That's what the the rapture of the church, the catching away described in 1 Thessalonians, is all about. Why would the church be spared this? Because we've already been tested. By definition, we've already been tested and found to believe. There's no point in putting us to the test. Now, there there are a couple of of myths that I've heard in my time, and maybe you've heard them as well. One is, is the church has to be purified. The church is purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not purified by what we suffer. There, there's no point in denying purgatory and then saying tribulation is purgatory. We are purified in Christ. Is your life pure? Are you free of all sin? No, you're not. Neither am I. How free of sin do we have to be to qualify for heaven? Perfectly free, completely, not one speck. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why we die and are raised glorified. Somebody says, you've got to suffer to answer for your sin. Jesus bore the suffering for all or for none. The other thing that I've heard is that the church has got to go through the tribulation because, you know, the church has been so comfortable. In, in North America... I think you could say that the American church and the Canadian church have for 200 years enjoyed a pretty high degree of comfort. I, I, I won't argue that point. But in virtually every other nation on the face of the earth, including England, under uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, who put 300 Protestants to death, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Middle East, Africa, North Africa, Central Africa, South Africa, Asia... There are people, brothers and sisters of ours, faithful in Jesus Christ who are being tortured and dying right now. So to say the church has got to go through suffering is so ignorant and blind to what they're experiencing. And it really robs us of the opportunity to say we have been blessed with an easy road. And I think that easy road's going away. But we've been blessed with an easy road. The church is going to be removed because the tribulation is not about the church. It's about the, that final push to reveal the mercy of God to the world. So Jesus makes a promise in verse 12 and 13. We'll move through this a little bit more quickly and be done. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Let me just say this. Prophetic time doesn't count days, months, and years. Prophetic time counts events. The next thing that Jesus is going to do is come for his church. That's what soon means. There's nothing in the way of that. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Not steal your salvation, but rob you of your rewards. Our salvation is all on an even plane. Our salvation is that, that day's wage that we receive, regardless of when we believed or how well we believed. But there are rewards that we receive based on our faithfulness and based on how we live. We do risk losing those rewards if we yield to the pressure of the world. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, dealing with the, 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 the ones who falsely claim to be Jews, who believe that they are the temple of God. 
And I will, these are three just remarkable things to me. Never shall he go out of it, that's eternal. And I will write on him three things. The name of my God, which means being marked as God's possession. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, which means having a permanent address. Peter says we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're migrants, we're immigrants, but we'll have a permanent address. And, Jesus says, my own new name. Jesus has a new name. Jesus has a new name. Um, There is no way to know from Scripture what that new name is. That doesn't stop commentators from trying to figure it out. (laughs) Which, ultimately, when they get down to the end of 2, 3, 4, 5, 10 pages of text, they ultimately have to say, but who knows? So (laughs) why are you doing that? I'm not so much interested in what the new name is because we don't know it yet. I'm interested in why. Why? And I just want to tell you this. I can't prove this from the Bible. I can't. I can't prove this from the Bible. This is what I think. And so I'm just going to let you ponder it. But please don't go quoting scripture on it because it's not from the Bible. It's what I think. I think the reason that Jesus has a new name and he has not yet revealed it is it's not a name that can ever be spoken by unholy lips. It is for his people alone. It is for his people alone. We all had a dad. We all had a mom. We all had daddy. We all had mommy. We had one of each. And it's that. Nobody else is allowed to use that name. I don't have to tell you that the most common use of Jesus Christ in our time is not in worship, but in blasphemy and in swearing and in cursing. He won't allow his new name to be polluted, so he's keeping it a secret until those who hear it will never pollute it. And then John says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a discouraged church in Philadelphia. They're struggling. They're just hugely outnumbered. And, and Jesus says to them, you are the victors. You are the ones who have my pleasure. You are the ones who have my name, my word, my gospel. Hold fast to those things. Trust me. Stand your ground. Take advantage of the open door and opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And I come soon for you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that wonderful promise and the wonderful truths that are here. We contemplate and think about the fact, Jesus, that you would have a new name. We don't know what the name is. And frankly, we don't know why. You don't tell us why you have a new name. But perhaps it's because you don't want that name sullied or polluted. But rather, those who hear that name, those who have that name written on them will without exception honor it, worship it, exalt it. Maybe that's the name which is above every other name. I don't know. We thank you for your mercy and for the hope that you give us. None of that is based on us, Lord. We know that. None of it's based on our goodness Salvation is not about you making up for what we can't do. Salvation is about you giving us everything because we are lost, utterly lost without you. So we thank you for your word. Let it feed us this week and nourish our hearts this week as we meditate on it. Jesus, in your holy name we pray. Amen.